0: Welcome to today's edition of This Wellness Life. My name is Kendra Zenizak. I'm an Associate Lecturer of Kinesiology at Ball State University. For today's topic, we're actually going to be joined by three of my fantastic colleagues. Joining us today is Renisha Weston, Director of Health Promotion and Advocacy, Destiny Cherry, Health and Wellness Coordinator, and Anna McGee, Victim Advocate. As we get into today's topic, I do just kind of wanna give a small word of warning that we are gonna talk about some topics that may be sensitive in nature. If you find that you need to step away from the podcast, pause it for a minute, just gather yourself or gather your thoughts, please know that that is perfectly acceptable. And at the end, we'll provide some different resources regarding the different topics that we're gonna talk about today. Our primary focus today is kicking off the semester positively and talking about how to set up your red zone defense. So during this first time frame of the semester, we run into what's known as the red zone. So Anna, I'm gonna ask you to go ahead and if you don't mind, define and describe what this quote unquote red zone happens to be.
1: Sure, thank you, Kendra. Yeah, so our red zone is classified as the first six weeks on campus. During this first six weeks, um, at the beginning of the fall semester, it's marked with an especially high incidence of sexual assault on college campuses across the nation we typically see increased risk of sexual assault, especially for first-year students, for many reasons. The first being that oftentimes this is first-year students' first time away from home. So with that comes increased independence, and with increased independence often comes with increased exploration of alcohol and other drugs. We also find that being in a new environment, perhaps a first-year student's first time on campus or in that city also adds to the risk because they're in unfamiliar environments. So we see that
0: impacting the risk of sexual assaults as well. Thank you, thanks for that description. And so when we look at it from that sense, what we're trying to focus on today is how to mitigate some of those risks, how to decrease some of the potential possibility for either one of some certain circumstances or situations when we start to see higher incidences of sexual assaults and we start to see potentially higher incidences of alcohol consumption, we know that those two may have that correlation perspective, but not actually potentially that causation effect. And so when we look at those topics today, we're going to try and explore those a little bit, try and get into some of the different different areas as far as what we can do as individuals and what we can do as communities to try and decrease the likelihood of either one of those scenarios taking place. So we do want to start off today talking a little bit more about why we see some higher percentages of cases of sexual assaults reported within these first six weeks and within the first half of the semester. But how does this really compare when we start to think about, say, Thanksgiving to the end of the semester or even into the spring semester? What is it that we start to see statistically within these first six weeks to probably eight weeks or nine to 10 weeks?
1: Studies show that more than 50% of sexual assaults within a year happen between the beginning of fall semester and Thanksgiving break. That's really, you know, August, September, October, and November, so that's four months out of the year that contain more than 50% of sexual assaults. We also find that one in four women on college campus experience sexual assault within their first four semesters. That's one-fourth of women students on college campuses due to many reasons, but mostly increased independence is what we find.
0: And so we know statistically as well, when we start to look at sexual assault cases in comparison to certain behaviors, we see that there is a high percentage of circumstances or sexual assaults in which either that the perpetrator the victim or both, unfortunately, have consumed alcohol, and we've talked about it, mentioned it before, and want to reiterate the fact that consuming alcohol does not cause sexual assaults and is not an excuse for sexual assaults by any means whatsoever, but why do you think, or what does the research indicate, maybe some of the potential reasons why sexual assault and alcohol consumption may have that correlation?
1: Absolutely, yeah, thank you for pointing out that just correlation is not causation. And we find that oftentimes students may not have the full understanding of consent. So that's why at Ball State, we um, use our FRIES graphic to kind of break down consent. So just to briefly go through that for all of our listeners, we use FRIES, the acronym. So F stands for freely given, R stands for reversible. So you can change your mind at any time. I stands for informed. So being fully informed of everything taking place. E stands for enthusiastic and S stands for specific. So we use this model to really educate our students so that there's no confusion on what consent entails so
0: that all of our students can be fully informed. And with speaking to students being informed, I'm gonna direct this question to Renisha a little bit more from the health educator perspective and just kind of ask what you utilize in general from a little bit more of a recommendation strategy What would you say are some different strategies that either individuals or campuses can really look at implementing to have a positive impact on potentially mitigating the risk of what we see in the red zone timeframe within this first six weeks?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I would definitely say making sure that the campus community or any kind of organization, they've created resources and also there's access to said resources, educational resources, resources of support and making sure that the students, since we're talking about college campuses, making sure that the students know what those resources are. Having buy-in from upper administration definitely helps because then it kind of rolls down to other departments and, you know, within the students. And it's just really, really helpful working with and partnering with faculty because we know that faculty, they see the students a lot. So making sure that we are doing all that we can do to just let everyone know what the resources on the campus are. And with that, bystander intervention trainings and not just one training, but having follow-up trainings, having follow-up conversations about these things, understanding that different communities, they might need different things when it comes down to bystander intervention training and what that would look like. So meeting the students where they are, having the students be part of the conversation, I think is very important. And again, working with the students so they can understand the importance of the red zone, why it is the way it is understanding the signs and symptoms of alcohol poisoning. So those trainings are extremely
0: important. And just to kind of throw in a a separate little learning piece of information, as if I'm a student and I potentially see some type of situation where I just don't think two individuals that are having a conversation or two individuals are together, and I just don't feel as though that's necessarily a safe situation for one of those individuals, what are some potential uh, strategies that I could apply as an individual at that particular point in time to try and perhaps decrease the likelihood that a potential sexual assault might actually take place.
1: That's another thing that health promotion advocacy and the Office of Victim Services discusses by senior intervention. So, some ways that we think about intervention, we, I use the three Ds, which are direct, distract, and delegate. So We can directly intervene that. would be walking up to somebody directly addressing their actions that are causing issues. But however, as we all know, that might not always be the best way to intervene. The second D is distract. You could walk up and perhaps distract the individual who's creating these issues. And that gives the opportunity for any other individuals who may feel uncomfortable to exit the situation. And then our 3D is delegate. It's always very, very important to make sure that you're in a safe environment when you are intervening. If you are going to put yourself in harm's way or you feel unsafe, delegating to somebody more apt to appropriately intervene is always important as well. Thank you for that question.
0: Thank you for that information. And I think it's important to note too, as we start to kind of think about situations or scenarios that we might find ourselves in or we might find other individuals in, that we have to step outside of ourselves and sometimes our own personal experiences to kind of understand that different circumstances and different situations mean different things to different individuals. And another fact that I want to point out as we start to move forward with this topic of discussion just a little bit is that sexual assault does not discriminate. It does not know color. It does not know race. It does not know gender identity. It does not know sexual orientation, any type of discriminatory factors. As individuals, as we think about it from a bystander intervention viewpoint, understanding that any individual at any point in time may be in a situation that's uncomfortable to them, And what we as individuals have that responsibility from a bystander perspective to try and decrease any likelihood or any concern for that person's well-being or their safety. In that sense, too, when we start to kind of put these two topics together, just because someone has consumed alcohol doesn't mean that they are going to be sexually assaulted. Or just because someone has not consumed alcohol does not mean that they will. But it's important to understand that we do see during the red zone, we do see these two behaviors increase in likelihood. And so with that being concerns, we also have to think about the other piece to that puzzle, and that's the alcohol consumption piece. From that perspective, as an individual, as a student, what can students and individuals do to try and decrease their risk as far as overconsuming alcohol if they choose to consume? Destiny, I'm going to turn to you for a little bit as far as information is concerned. When we start to turn the page a little bit from our previous discussion into the secondary piece of the information, thinking about that alcohol consumption and thinking about higher risk use, what truly fits into that classification of higher risk use or what defines and describes that type of behavior? I would love to touch on that. Like you mentioned, we do see with those first six weeks
3: of the red zone an increase in alcohol consumption. So we always like to teach students what the definition of a standard drink is before we talk about that excessive alcohol use. With a standard drink, we're looking at one drink per hour that our livers can process. And that looks a little different depending on the kind of alcohol. If you're looking at beer, let's say, a lighter beer, you're going to have a higher amount of ounces that you can consume because it has a lower percentage of alcohol or that alcohol by volume, that ABV. So light beer, you can drink 14 ounces of it, and it's going to be around 4% alcohol. Whereas even once you move into like a regular beer, it's going to be less ounces. So those 12 ounces of a regular beer is going to be 5% alcohol. And then we see with craft beer, it even moves up in percentage of alcohol. And then when you go to wine, our white wine, red wine, you're going to be able to drink four to five ounces and it's going to be about 12 to 15% alcohol. And then with liquor, it's important for students to know that that has a much higher alcohol percentage than some of the other alcohols I've mentioned. So 80 proof liquor is going to be 40% alcohol by volume. And it's only going to be about one and a half ounces of liquid. And it's just important that everybody knows that because a lot of times students, they overestimate or they underestimate even sometimes what that looks like. And they don't really fully know what they're drinking, which can be an issue because they don't know what they're putting into their bodies. And then even a step further from that, um, when we talk about binge drinking, um, depending on a student's biological sex depends on the impact of um, how they metabolize alcohol. So for females with that biological sex, we see that drinking four or more drinks in two hours is considered binge drinking, excessive drinking. And then for males, that biological sex, um, we're seeing five or more drinks in two hours is considered excessive drinking or binge drinking.
0: Thank you for that information. And so when we think about why we classify binge drinking and why that gets the title and the terminology that it does and where those numbers came from, typically what's been associated with binge drinking are negative outcomes or negative results with that type of behavior, with that type of alcohol consumption. So to kind of lead into that next question, Renisha, what kinds of negative consequences Uh, Do we see typically associated or potentially associated, I should say, with some more along the lines of common binge drinking behaviors?
2: There are several. So we can start with just injuries, small injuries like, oh, I ran into something and I'm going to bruise tomorrow. More severe and life-threatening injuries like driving a car. So drunk driving, drowning, things of that sort, violence can increase when binge drinking is present alcohol poisoning, and then riskier behaviors. And so typically when we think of drinking and riskier behaviors, we kind of just, you know, correlate that with sexual behaviors, but there's a lot more to it than that. So you do have the sexual riskier behaviors, but also the socially riskier behaviors. When you think about your friend groups and things you're saying and how you might be behaving, if, you know, you engaged in binge drinking and, or just you know, a lot of, and consumed a lot of alcohol within a certain period of time, um, how that's going to impact you academically how that's going to impact you occupationally and things of that sort. Also, we're in this this digital space. And so thinking about risky behaviors when it comes down to the digital world. So what are you posting? Are you posting different things when you know you're intoxicated? And what does that look like? So who is your audience and and how does this impact you and your audience based on the things that you're posting or the things that you're saying or the things that you're messaging? So definitely that social and that digital piece is something that we kind of need to discuss You know, a bit when we're talking about binge drinking and or just alcohol misuse, also the overall health issues. And so it's important, you know, for us to make sure that when we can and when we um, have the privilege to do so, make sure that we're going to get checkups and things of that sort. Right. And sometimes we don't really pay attention to how much alcohol misuse can impact. Our overall health and well-being, it impacts things like sleep. It can really, really impact, you know, one's mental health and whether that what does that look like? And then again, the physical health and well-being as well. And then you have like alcohol use disorders and then just alcohol dependency. That's also um, one of the negative consequences when it comes down to alcohol misuse.
0: Fantastic information, because I think oftentimes when individuals misuse alcohol, the common thought is, I don't want to be hungover tomorrow. We don't think about the long-term impacts, the consequences that it can have on us professionally, even what happens, what we post now can come back as we've seen for multiple individuals 10 years later, 20 years later, that it will continue to follow us from that point forward, you know, as a digital footprint. And also, as you mentioned too, as a physical footprint of what it does on a continued basis. So yeah, thinking and taking it both that step beyond just, uh, I don't want to feel awful tomorrow, but thinking about it from a much longer sense from there as well.
2: Something that I hear a lot of from students or in, in my career that I've heard a lot of from students is I don't know why my friend won't talk to me anymore. And then when we kind of retrace the steps of what happened, you know, within the last weekend or the last night. Or they just, you know, their friend is ready to kind of speak to them. It's typically because of something that they they did while they were intoxicated that they just don't remember. So again, that's why I, just everything that you said about you know that digital footprint and then impacting like your relationships with your friends and your family and other loved ones. It's important to kind of keep that in mind, you know, when you're thinking about alcohol misuse.
0: So even if we want, if we have students that want to go out and then and participate in consuming alcohol and participate in some of those you know what we all view as quote unquote typical collegiate behaviors which as we know from research does not always mean and does not always mean every student is out consuming alcohol at all periods of time but if a student chooses to use alcohol Destiny, what do you think are some strategies that students can apply in these types of situations and circumstances that they can maybe potentially decrease the amount of alcohol that they're consuming and still have an, an enjoyable time or decrease the likelihood that they might engage in some of these higher risk usage that leads to those higher risk behaviors?
3: Yeah, thank you so much for asking Kendra. Um, Sometimes we see schools not wanting to address this, but we do realize and we understand that there will be students who drink. Even on our college campus, we have done surveys as recent as 2019 that show that about one in four students are not drinking alcohol on our college campus, but that leaves three in four students who are. So we wanna make sure we're addressing those risk reduction strategies for students and teaching them um, how they can safely consume alcohol if they so choose. And a lot of times we see that they know the basics. So they know um, being hydrated or eating food is going to play a role in how they feel. But there are definitely things that they don't think about or they don't know. Um, For example, medications. Students sometimes don't understand that medications can interact with alcohol since it is a drug, and they don't realize that things such as antidepressants can play a role in how you metabolize and that alcohol absorption. Um, So we want to make sure that they're considering things like that and talking to their doctor on how and if they can consume alcohol. Another thing students don't think about as well is carbonation. So if they're drinking pop or they're drinking soda, if they're mixing drinks with something that's carbonated, that carbonation plays a role in the alcohol absorption as well. So it absorbs a lot quicker than something that didn't have that. Additionally, um, some risk reduction strategies we like to tell students is just thinking about like in this day and age, the technology that we have, they can order an Uber, they can order a Lyft or a ride sharing company, they can contact, they have friends who can come and pick them up, they have apps where uh, their friends can keep track of where they are to keep them safe. We definitely encourage those things and we have things on our own campus that are after hours that students can utilize to make sure that they are staying safe in those situations. At the end of the day though, it honestly, is just education, making sure that students are aware, like I said earlier, that they know what they're putting in their body. They're keeping track of how much with whatever way that they seem fit, knowing things like alcohol is a depressant and things like caffeine are a stimulant. So you put those two things together and then the body doesn't really understand what's happening. Teaching students that with that They might think that alcohol is a stimulant because it makes them feel good at first, but it's just that first drink or two. They have positive chemicals in their brain that are telling them that it's a fun time, not realizing that the stimulant side of things affects their nervous system and slows things down and can really make them feel poorly if they're not in a good place when they're drinking. So telling them to make sure their mental health is in check, telling them to make sure that their physical health is in check as well. And then we also have the simple things too, like don't mix alcohol. Some students don't realize that they can't try every single alcohol in a night and still feel good the next day. So teaching them to keep that
0: to stay hydrated, to eat food, all of those things play a role in that risk reduction. Thank you for those. And I think it's so important that obviously, you know, you kind of hear the standard tried and trues to eat before and eat during and make sure that you're consuming water. But oftentimes we do kind of bypass some of those more intense, more chemical based concepts when it comes down to that process of consuming alcohol. It's, forgetting the fact that alcohol is truly a drug because oftentimes since it is legal for individuals 21 and older, it loses some of that stigma of being a drug and just seems more commonplace. And so the effects of it seem minimized to a certain extent. And I think Destiny too, it goes back to your previous points of talking about what a true standard drink is. If I go out and I order a Long Island iced tea, that's not one standard drink. And so it's understanding what gets mixed into some of these different things or what you know comes out of the cooler at a party or those types of things. So just making that sense of awareness and education so that the more informed individuals are, the better choices and decisions they can make for themselves short and long-term. And so that kind of comes down to my next point And my next question is if individuals choose to drink or choose not to drink, that is again, we're talking about decision-making skills, but it comes also to the fact of there is still a ripple effect of alcohol consumption because if individuals overconsume and get to that point of potentially alcohol poisoning, it doesn't just affect that individual that's suffering from alcohol poisoning. It can affect anyone who's in that situation and in that scenario. And so I think that's one of the other, you know, risk reduction strategies or one of the major concepts that particularly from an education perspective, what are some of the things that we look for to understand if a person is experiencing some potential signs and symptoms of alcohol poisoning, where it's not just binge drinking anymore, it has crossed the line into a concern or a life-threatening situation.
2: Okay, yeah, so um, we utilize two different graphics to kind of express what alcohol poisoning is, mainly because they're words that, you know, correlate with drinking, like cups and pubs. Um, So with cups, the the cup acronym, C, cold and clammy skin, um, U, unresponsiveness, P, puking, and then S, slow and shallow breath. So those are the tips and tricks that we, well, the signs and symptoms um, in a tip. As far as like using cups that we kind of share with students so they can easily understand the signs and symptoms of alcohol poisoning. Another one that we use, which is promoted by the Gordy Institute, which is they do a lot of work within like collegiate alcohol education and health and well-being. Um, We use pubs. And so with the P, puking. U, unresponsiveness, B, breathing, and then S is skin. And so we utilize those two just to kind of give students a simple way to understand the signs and symptoms of alcohol poisoning and what that looks like. And we believe in also sharing information as what to do when you suspect a student, you know, is navigating through alcohol poisoning. And so we typically tell them the main two things would be call for help and then also stayed with that person. So we strongly encourage folks to stay with the person. We you know, encourage the recovery position, moving them into that. But then we also explain why it's important to never put things like a backpack behind them so they can stay in that recovery position and why. And again, that reinforcement of just staying with that person. We also discuss things such as, you know, body temperature regulation and how it's best to just leave them where they are. And if you have to cover them, cover them with only a sheet. But we we do that because we want students to understand how severe this is, how significant this is, and why it's important to stay with that person and also call for help. And another important thing that we do typically discuss with our students is making sure that they are not trying to feed a person that they are suspected of, you know, of having alcohol poisoning and or give them liquid, because they are probably not in a state to chew. And or swallow, and so just making sure that we provide those um, that information to the students so they can understand what they can do as an active bystander in a situation of that sort. And again, we just reinforce consistently the concept of calling for help and staying with that person and rolling them over to their to the recovery position. That's kind of what we do pertaining to alcohol poisoning. And we think that it's important when you're talking about folks who are you know who make the decision to drink and or folks who decide that they are not going to drink because this impacts everyone in a different way. So if you're making a decision not to drink, but yet you are in a position where other folks around you are drinking and you suspect this, you're able to intervene. If you're making the decision to drink, but yet you still see someone else in this situation, you're making the decision to intervene. And there are also laws and policies, depending on where you are, that can kind of protect you if you are the one having to call from help. Not every state you know, has these, I'm, I'm assuming, but Indiana does um, and Boston we also have a policy here to kind of protect students that do decide to call for help to save a life and intervene in a situation like that as well. And
0: that just kind of goes to my my next question slash point in that, um, in looking uh, uh, and doing research as far as a little bit of background information, we noticed that I noticed that all 50 states do have some type of good Samaritan law so. It's encouraging to see that there is consideration for individuals that are consuming alcohol that have overconsumed, that the law is there to protect that individual to a certain extent so that they can get help to make sure that no one has to suffer unnecessarily because of that fear of individuals around that person that they might get in trouble for some type of behavior. Uh, and so, the important note here is that. For all states, and even within the District of Columbia, there are variations or versions of a good Samaritan law, but it's important to check whatever state you're in, whatever state you are physically in, that you are well aware of what those particular laws and standards happen to be, as it does potentially vary from place to place, from state to state. So again, maybe you live in one state, if a person's going to college in another state, make sure that where you are at, you are well aware of what that law happens to be truly taken the opportunity today to try and look at some of these different topics that are very pertinent, very time sensitive to the beginning of what we typically see as the fall semester. But it's understanding that even outside of these first six weeks of the semester, these behaviors, these occurrences can still happen. So at any point in time, this information is still relevant, it is still pertinent, um, and it is still pertinent to individuals that are choosing not to consume alcohol. Because again, we have to understand that we are all connected as a society. We're all connected as a community. And so what our behaviors impact others and their behaviors impact us. So I just want to take the opportunity to thank you, Renisha. Thank you, Anna. And thank you, Destiny, for joining me today on this Wellness Life podcast. I do want to, um, again, just say that if you or someone you know is happening to experience a crisis related to either one of these two topics, there are resources available to help 24-7. In regards to sexual assault, the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline is available at 1-800-656-467. And this hotline is run by the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, which is known as RAIN. and they can contact you or put you in contact with your local rape crisis center. They are available 24-7, and they are also available even from a confidential chat perspective in both Spanish and English. And with alcohol and substance abuse, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a 24-7 national help hotline for individuals with substance abuse issues and their family members. And that telephone number is 1-800-662-4357. And again, their services are available in both English and Spanish. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to listen to this Wellness Life As we sign off, I just like to say, be safe, be well, be kind to yourself and to each other. Thank you.